Hello, and welcome to Quest, a vineyard church where we experience life as friends with faith through encountering God, loving others, and making a difference in our community. If you're new, there will be information at the end of this podcast where you can plug into Quest in person or online. Now let's dive into this week's teaching. the series called Shortcuts. So we started a few weeks ago. We took a break a couple weeks to do some different stuff. But uh, isn't it true we like shortcuts? We like everything sooner rather than later in life. But the truth is the best things in life don't come with shortcuts. And we see this truth in Jesus' life. And I think it's really encapsulated in a short passage of, about Jesus' baptism and his temptation, which is what this series is all about. We're dealing with that passage in text of Scripture. God affirms just kind of to get us back in since it's been a couple of weeks, God affirms Jesus in saying, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And we see in that passage that God's spirit comes on him in a really profound way. It's this really cool experience that he has. And yet the first thing the Holy Spirit does is he leads Jesus into this desolate, dangerous desert wilderness where God knows he's going to be tempted for 40 days. God doesn't bring the temptation, but he knows he's going to face it there. Three weeks ago, we, in our first message in No Shortcuts, we kind of talked about the implications of this. And we talked about how we as humans, especially as Americans, I think we tend to live life with the assumption, the expectation that life is going to generally be the good life, is generally going to be comfortable, easy, smooth. And when life isn't comfortable, when it isn't smooth, when it isn't easy, when we face difficulty and hardship, we tend to think that someone did something wrong. And most oftentimes we think we're the ones who did something wrong. We think, well, man, I was so stupid. I, if I would have just thought harder, thought more, if I would have worked harder, this wouldn't have happened. If I would have just controlled things a little better. And when we can't handle the guilt of that, we tend to blame God for the stuff that's going on. And yet we pose the question, if Jesus is the only sinless person to ever live and was led by God into the wilderness where God knew he was going to face temptation, and then Jesus all throughout his whole life faces difficulty, if that happened to Jesus then the lesson for us is this. We can expect life to be a struggle. So let's not be surprised by it when it happens. Sounds depressing, right? But there's so much hope. There's so much freedom that comes when we settle that issue in our hearts about how we view life. Because when that issue is not settled, we live life with double or triple the pain. Because when something bad happens, when temptation comes our way, we not only have to deal with the pain of that and the frustration of that, but we also have to deal with the guilt of what did I do wrong that made this come about. And oftentimes we also have to deal with the pain and the difficulty of feeling like God abandoned us in that difficulty. See, when we learn to face difficulty and struggle and temptation and pain like Jesus, we actually find the abundant life that is worth living. Because God promises two things. He says he's going to lead us into an abundant life, but he also promises, he says this, that we're also going to, as long as we're in this world where sin is present, we are going to experience struggle. Both of those things are true. We also noted in part one of this series that all of our temptations tend to center around three questions. Am I really forgiven or is God punishing me? Is God really going to work on my behalf? Am I really who God says I am and worth what God says I am? See, I I look at my life in those moments when I blew it 
uh, when under pressure, when under the pressure of life, I succumbed to temptation. In that moment, I was looking at God, maybe not consciously, but always when I get down to what's really going on in me. In reality, I was saying to God, God, I don't trust you. You aren't going to come through for me in this time. This is too much for me. I failed too much and you really aren't going to bless me and forgive me and work for me in this. So I'm just going to take a shortcut. Because I'm going to get rid of the immediate problem of feeling that tension, that difficulty, that pain, the circumstances. This is the way I'm going to cope because, God, you're not helping me cope, so I'm just going to do it on my own. Today we're going to look at the first of Jesus' three temptations. And we're going to look at that by using this outline. Just two questions. How does Satan tempt Jesus and us? We're going to look at that. And then we're going to ask the question, how does Jesus and how do we overcome temptation? Remember, God doesn't tempt us, but God knows that the resistance and struggle of us facing temptation will expose our weaknesses and help us become stronger, just like lifting weights, the resistance of lifting weights makes our muscles become stronger. Matthew 4, we get to see the showdown between Jesus and Satan, the enemy of God, happen, and it says this, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After 40 days and 40 nights of fasting, meaning no food, he was hungry. I'm sorry, every time I read that I go, hungry? Who would have thought? I mean, it just makes me smile. And why do we say the obvious? I mean, that's the reason why fasting as a spiritual discipline is something we really like so much, right? Because we just love being hungry. I mean, this, I think this meme describes me and maybe describes you when I'm hungry and fasting. It's uh, me after being on a diet for 3.8 seconds, right? <laughs> I don't know about you, but I, I mean, I, I, when I'm hungry, I get hangry, too. Forty days without food, sleeping on the rocks, and the text says Jesus is hungry. See, here's the deal. A point is being made by saying the super obvious. How does Satan tempt Jesus and us? Satan taps into our vulnerable core desires and needs. I think many of us have learned, especially if you grew up in church, many of us learned about Satan through kids' church songs. And honestly, I don't think they adequately teach us about, about who Satan is really, really is. When as kids we start singing this little light of mine and we're taught to hold up our finger representing a, a candle burning and we say, won't let Satan it out. Really? My little hand is going to, Satan's so inept, my little hand's going to keep him from blowing it out. I mean, Really? Or the children's song, many of you may know, Down in My Heart, it starts, I've got the love of Jesus, love of Jesus, down in my heart. Right? And it goes, the the chorus is, And I'm so happy, so very happy, I've got the love of Jesus in my heart. And then here's the verse about Satan. It says, And if the devil doesn't like it, he can sit on attack. Thank you. Somebody remembered. You're supposed to say ouch when you get to that point. Sit on attack. Sit on attack. And if the devil doesn't like it, he can sit on attack. Sit on attack. Two state, really? Really? I mean, let's think about that from two respect. How many times has someone fallen to that kind of lame tack trick, right? And, and really, Satan is so dull and helpless that if he sits on attack, he's just going to stay there sitting on it? Ephesians 6. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his power, his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. This word scheming is really important to understand. It's not like the scheming that the Iranian president did this last week in an interview. If you saw that interview with him, he, he actually said, well, we're not the supporters of terrorism. 
Israel is actually the one who's supporting ISIS. Really, I, I didn't know that. Did you see that interview? No. This is the intelligence of the best spy novel you've ever read, where you didn't see until the very end how each step along the way the people's actions were anticipated. And even though the character in this book felt like they were in control, they really weren't. They had been profiled. but They were being anticipated and manipulated at every single turn. Satan knows where Jesus' weakness is, and he knows where ours is too, because he's profiled us. Satan's schemes to strike us at just the right time. Have you ever felt that? Like, why does everything pile on all at once at the worst time in life? Matthew 4 goes on. It says, And the tempter came and said to him, Jesus, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Now, bread represents in this uh, the most vulnerable part of our lives. It's the area of our lives where we're starving for something, where our, whether it's food or affirmation or love or sex or security or success uh, being wanted. It's that area that you are famished in. You are screaming for satisfaction of that need. And bread in this instance also shows us something more. How many of you like bread? I mean, everybody who's gluten-free tells me they like bread, too. They just wish they can't, just can't have it anymore, right? Man, we went out for Derek's birthday this last week, and we uh, went to this wonderful restaurant, and the bread was amazing. I, the meal was amazing, too, but I sat there with this dilemma. I couldn't decide whether I just wanted to eat the bread and take the meal home or whether I wanted to eat both, and I'm so sure you feel really sorry that I had to face that dilemma this last week. That same day on his birthday, Derek actually went to Kara's class for a couple hours and read the Bible story to the kids in her class that day. And they asked him in the context of that who Satan is and why is Satan so angry at us. And the Bible describes Satan in Ezekiel and Isaiah. It shows Satan as this perfection of beauty, an angel of the highest order, who became the devil because he became proud of beauty and he wanted to be like God. And he took a third of the angels in rebellion against God. And Derek summarized Satan's hate uh, so well for the kids. He said, Satan hates us so much because God loves us so much. See, God created us in his image. And Satan hates that. And anything he can do to hurt us is like his F you to God in that. So Satan normally doesn't tempt us with things that are purely bad or ugly. No, he uses beauty and seduction. He taps into our core desires and needs. Satan approaches us with things that in many instances are, might even be good, like a fantastic piece of bread. And often the way temptation from Satan goes is Satan questions our identity. And we see this actually in the way he approaches Jesus. Satan says to him, says, says if you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. If you are the Son of God. Satan knows exactly who Jesus is. I mean, almost every time Jesus confronts demonic powers throughout his ministry, the demons say to him, you are the son of God, please don't torment him. He knows exactly who he is. Satan and the demons are not atheists. What Satan is doing with Jesus and what he does with us is he tries to get us to question who God says we are and our worth to God, whether God cares enough to show up or not. Which brings us back to those three core questions of temptation. It's like Satan is saying to Jesus, if you really are God's son, then wouldn't God, your father, want you to be well-fed? 
Why are you sleeping on the rocks instead of in a palace? Why are you going hungry instead of being well-fed with all the food that you deserve? The temptation is as old as humanity. In Genesis, Satan's first temptation to Adam and Eve is, did God really say that you couldn't eat of the tree in the garden? And they say yes. And Satan's response is, maybe God is withholding something from you that, that you really deserve. That's, that's the core of the temptation. Isn't that the way we often think in life? We think God's commands all too often are prudish or too strict. And so we respond to that saying, well, I deserve this. doesn't matter what God says, I deserve this. And those three words of I deserve this have added a lot of pounds to my life. Maybe yours too. And those three words have led me to avoid life and escape in entertainment when the better choice in that time of life would have been for me to lovingly and caringly care for others in my life or maybe develop my relationship with God or or do healthier self-care for myself. Those three words, I deserve this, can lead us to all sorts of falling short of the really, really good that God wants us to have and, and even lead us into destruction and pain. The goal of Satan is to get us to believe that at the very least, God isn't telling us the whole truth, that he's hiding something from us, that he really isn't going to come through like he says he is, to believe God is some sort of insecure power monger withholding some good from us, being too strict. Satan tries to get us to believe there's a better, easier, more enjoyable way to live than God's way, a shortcut. Jesus says, uh, when, when he says to Jesus, you are the son of God, I mean, he's saying to him, why, why would you do without? Uh, just go ahead and do what your needs are screaming at you to do. Even if you're wrong, God will understand and God will forgive you, right? And those are often the last words that we speak before we put ourselves on a road to destruction and increased difficulty in life of compounding problems and pain and difficulty rather than finding the overcoming victory and strength God wants us to have when we face difficulty and temptation. So we start thinking, so I don't feel very loved. So we start thinking, well, I'm just going to go get that feeling met, that need met wherever I can, even if it's only met partially, even if it's only for a fleeting moment that I feel like that need's met, I'm just going to go get that need met. And that's actually what Satan is saying to us, trying to get us to, to do. And we end up trading that which is rock solid and enduring for that which is a fake knockoff and temporary. Our second question, how does Jesus... And how do we overcome temptation? It starts by recognizing there is no truth in Satan. John 10 says, The thief, Satan, comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come, on the other hand, that they may have life and have it to the full. There are two contrasting agendas with absolutely no crossover between them. See, Satan's temptations are always this kind of bait and switch. He promises good, but it ends in a corruption, a more difficulty, more pain. How can God, and some of those things God redeems in our life, I get that, I understand that, so we can all have our stories, and we all have our stories of bad, sinful, harmful things, decisions that we have made that have eventually lead us to good. But that's God's redemption. That's not a result of our sinful decision. See, many of our bad habits come from this bait-and-switch temptation of Satan. We are simply trying to get a good feeling, 
a pain-free existence, whether it's pain, emotional or spiritual or physical. So we do things to resolve that or avoid those bad feelings rather than face them and work through them. And we take a shortcut to something that we feel like is something like peace, but that escape, whatever it is, whether it's overindulgence in entertainment or movies movies and video games or whether it's drinking or taking drugs or, or something else still leaves you lonely and stressed and disappointed where you are in life and still feeling like you don't know God's will or God's purpose for your life any better today than you did a year ago or 10 years ago. See, in our relationships, we see this. Tension arises in your relationship with a family member or a colleague and they begin to see you differently and you begin to see them differently, a little more negatively and arguments and tension erupt and we start focusing on our own needs in that moment. How do I get my needs met in this friendship or this family relationship? How do I get my own promotion and work against this coworker who is such a problem? And we start seeing the other problem, other person as a threat, as one who brings problems into our life. So Satan tempts us with a shortcut. In marriage, those temptations might result in, oh, we still live together, but there's kind of this safe distance. We don't really talk as much. We don't really talk as deeply. We don't open up. We just kind of this safe distance. Or sometimes it looks like losing ourselves in romance, the romance of stories and movies or, or pornography or adultery or divorce can also be a shortcut just to get us out of the problem instead of overcoming it. In work, those temptations may be to lie or to not share credit where credit is due, instead to just self-promote, to undermine teamwork in order to advance yourself. And we feel that because of the lack of integrity because of the, in the other person, because of the harm and pain that I'm experiencing, by my, my needs not being met in this fact, the fact that my needs are so unmet, we think, well, my actions are justified. Pain of disappointment can be, can be so great. It can be so heartbreaking. But it can also drive us to a more immediate relief of an unmet need rather than something that's enduring and overcoming and finding the strength God wants in our life. So we look at the two of these three questions behind every temptation. Is God really going to work on my behalf? And we think, well, if we were in Jesus' shoes in this temptation, no, I've been hungry for 40 days. I've, I've now finished the fasting time, and there isn't food waiting for me. God isn't showing up. God doesn't care. I've got to do it myself. Or the question, am I really who God says I am and worth what God says I am? And, well, clearly not, we'd say in this temptation, right? He can call me son or daughter all he wants, but a father doesn't let his kids go through this kind of thing. And that's exactly what Satan wants us to believe and how what Satan wants us to live. So where's the place? Where's the place in your life that you are currently most frequently tempted, most vulnerable? Do you believe that you have given into temptation so many times that you don't deserve to be forgiven and God's blessing to be on your life? Do you really believe God wants the best for you? Do you trust God cares enough about you that he's actually going to weigh in and show up and help you? What's Jesus' response to this temptation? Verse 4, Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And Jesus is actually quoting Old Testament Scripture here in his answer. He goes back to what is absolutely true, trusting God and his word, truth, is the primary way to defeat temptation. But Jesus doesn't say, I'm not hungry. All you need is faith. 
No, Jesus says, not by bread alone, which means, in other words, our needs are really important. But there's something more important, which is trusting God knows your needs before you know them, and He cares for meeting your needs more than you care about having your needs met. And therefore, you live life focusing on your trust of God and His ways first and foremost. But don't we often forget that about God, those things? Don't we often live like the people in the Exodus, the, the story in the Old Testament of God bringing the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt into a promised land? They see all the plagues that are sent against Pharaoh to get him to let them go. And, and then they go, and on the way out, the Egyptian people want to see him to go, go so bad, they dump all their wealth and treasure on him. And when Pharaoh uh, changes his mind and he traps them along the Red Sea, God provides a way through the sea for them. And, and then just a few chapters later in Deuteronomy 8, they find themselves in the desert running out of food. And what do the people do? They say, God has brought us out here to die. They don't trust God is with them. They don't remember all the things that just happened a few days ago. So they say, well, we should just go back to Egypt because at least there while we were slaves, we had food. And what did they have in Egypt? They had 12-hour-plus days meeting these merciless quotas. Their firstborn sons were taken and killed. They ate meagerly given the demands of what they were forced to do each day and they were kept in poverty by the Egyptians. But isn't that what we think a lot of times? Just go back to what we were doing. Go back to the old temptation and fall into the temptation that we used to because we at least know that. We at least know that. We forget God and we live in the moment. And like the Israelites in the wilderness, it doesn't even dawn on us that God knew this was going to happen, that we would be facing this difficulty in our lives. It doesn't dawn on us as a first response that God has a plan. Instead, we don't trust he is with us or values us enough to meet our needs. So we take it in our own hands. We take shortcuts. See, God had a plan for the Israelites. We see that plan the very next day. God provides something called manna. And Jesus says, we live by every word that comes from the mouth of God. But what does Jesus not do in in saying that? He doesn't describe or demand to know God's plan for providing for him. Isn't it true we often get frustrated that God doesn't share his plan with us? How is this going to be resolved? How are we going to get through this? What's going to happen? When is it going to happen? Jesus simply trusts God and recognizes God is always with us and will be there for us. Ephesians 6, Paul is actually talking about this fight, uh, fighting the schemes of Satan and winning over temptation. He says, therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you've done everything to stand. Stand. Not even necessarily move forward. Just stand. I don't know about you, but have there been times in your life like mine where the pressure, the difficulty, the temptation was so great, you couldn't see what was next. You couldn't even figure out where to move forward. All you could do was stand and hope. And what this is saying to us is that God is so pleased when all you do is just you stand and you hope. So what is this armor of God? It goes on in the very next verse and says, Stand firm, then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. Truth is the first piece of the armor. Paul is inviting us to prioritize trusting God's word, Scripture, as the ultimate truth. Now, I recognize there's many here who love Scripture. I also recognize there's many here who struggle with Scripture. There are parts that we don't understand. 
There are parts that if we understand it as we believe we do, then it's, it's extremely troubling to us. And for some, maybe many, those extremely troubling parts cause us to not trust Scripture as accurate and reliable, and maybe even a few of us reject Scripture out of hand as story and legend and no more than that. From conversations that I've had for many years with many, many people, I, I, I know many who reject Scripture and don't trust it as reliable. And I've had that conversation, and, and every single one of them comes to, back down to they believe the academic press. Can I, can I just say... If you believe what your college professors told you about how the Bible isn't reliable or inaccurate, that's like, that's like me going to a doctorate in psychology who his last course in auto mechanics was a one-hour lecture in fourth-grade science about the combustion engine. This is the same guy who, when he takes things apart, um, he, he always puts them back together and has parts left over. And he's never successful at it, just can't figure out things at all. It's like me going to him and saying, how do I fix my car? Honestly, most of the people in academia that you've heard who, who, who speak against the reliability of Scripture have no clue. They've never studied it. It's like the psychologist trying to diagnose your car. Now, that means a lot of us hold that view, and we really haven't thought it through. At least that's been my experience in conversation. For example, there's, there's many ways to think it through, but let's just take just, just one small area we probably haven't thought it through. If you don't scripture, trust Scripture as God's reliable, inspired Word of God, then that belief requires that you also hold one of two other beliefs or you are motivated by something much more personal. And maybe it's both of these. See, if you don't trust Scripture as reliable, then you either believe God is, one, too small and too weak, not adept enough to be able to reliably communicate to us, even through imperfect humans. And that means you have to be able to say that that God who created all that exists, from the smallest subatomic particles of your DNA to the galaxies, that God who holds all that together is so weak and so incapable and so small that he cannot communicate accurately with us. You either have to say that, or you, also, or you may also have to say this. You have to believe God is not loving, but rather a cruel dictator who doesn't really want you to know what he thinks and how to live right and how to succeed in life. Now, I get that we first have to settle, is the Christian God really God? But whatever God you decide is real, you have to believe Scripture is reliable. And if you don't believe it is reliable, then you also have to hold one of two of those two or maybe both of those beliefs that God is small and weak and God is a capricious, mean, not loving God. And or your reason for not rejecting Scripture and not trusting it is motivated by a very personal reason. See, oftentimes our rejection of the authority and reliability of Scripture is not rational. It is simply because we don't want to face the authoritative claim an inspired, reliable Scripture has on our life. Either because we just want to do what we want to do, or more often than not, we don't want to face the claim of Scripture makes, the, makes on our life because we don't want to face the guilt and the shame of violating that claim and not living up to it. Because if the Bible really is God's reliable word to us, then we are morally bound 
to be obedient to what our Creator says about how He created us in the world. So we reject the claim of Scripture has on our lives and its demand for obedience because we don't want to feel guilty. See, rejecting Scripture lets us more easily say, well, I just get to choose what's right, and therefore I don't have to feel guilty about what Scripture says because I get to determine what's right and I don't have to abide by Scripture. Listen, there's a better way to avoid guilt and shame than to avoid it by saying the Bible isn't reliable. That better way is to accept Jesus as the Lord and leader of your life by accepting His forgiveness. You free yourself of guilt by fully recognizing that Jesus has indeed taken the blame for all of your failure and shortcomings and sin upon himself so that you can be free. And therefore, you don't have to live in guilt and shame any longer because of his great love for you. Now, the fight to stay living in that truth is a lifelong battle we face. That's the reason one of the core questions of temptation is, do you really trust? Do I really trust God's forgiveness? See, following Jesus and receiving his perfect forgiveness is a much more comprehensive, enduring way to deal with guilt and shame than it is to live in the mental and logical gymnastics that, that, that say God is love, but he's not really loving enough or bigger, powerful enough to communicate to us accurately. He doesn't care enough to do that. See, Jesus models our way through difficulty and temptation by saying to us, I trust God and I trust the scripture as truth. And I hold on to that as more important to than, than it is to fulfill my desires in my body, my flesh, my mind, my heart, my emotions, because I know he promises to fulfill them for me. So if they're lacking, then I still trust his truth more than what I need to do to meet those needs. See, yet, we fight a very real battle, and it's not just a battle within ourselves. It's a battle against Satan's temptations is what this text is teaching us, to hold on to and overcome truth. In 1982, a high school student named James Quentin Stevens, who now, has got, now goes by the name of T.J. Stevens, walked into a high school and started shooting one morning. He tells his story in an I Am Second film called Unworthy, and we don't have permission to share that, so I'm just going to quote some of it for you. Here's some of the story. He says, he says my, fa- my stepfather was an alcoholic, and I just lived in fear most of my life. Fear for my mom's life, fear for my brother's life. And he goes on and says, the child takes that to school. So he says, I was the black sheep in school. I was the one who thinks I'm this badass, his words. He goes on to say how his girlfriend broke up with him, and he ended up becoming suicidal. Saying, he, said, he says, I got down on my knees one day in a dark room. No lights were on. I put the gun in my mouth. I put my finger, my thumb on the trigger, and I'm applying pressure to the trigger and the life and the vo- This voice says to me in a soft tone, it says, if you do it the way I show you, I'll give you the peace you're looking for. And that voice, uh, he says, told me all the lies that a coward hears. He says, you'll show them. They're going to pay. All the statements about revenge. He goes on to describe actually writing the names of people on bullets, thinking, if I kill this person, I'll take away my pain. Nine o'clock the next morning, he, 10th of November, he walks into the school and starts shooting, and he counts it, saying it this way. He says, I was shooting down the hallways, but I was shooting above their heads. Kids were running and screaming. 
He says, I remember the negotiator uh, telling the negotiator, if you don't do what I tell you to do, I'm going to start lining up bodies in the hallway one by one with your name on them. And so he says, I, I go inside this room and all these people are there. And that, that, that voice that I heard in that bedroom the night before, that voice became many voices. He said, those voices were saying, you're a failure. You're nothing. Kill these people now. And he, he notes something deep in my heart was fighting, he says. He says, right in front of the hostages after that fight went on for a while, he says, I fell to my knees and I said, no more. I'll kill myself. You can't kill these people through me. So he put the barrel and the rifle, of the rifle in his mouth again, describing, he says, I put the pressure on the trigger, and, and all of a sudden this lady on my right fell to her knees with her hands over her face, and it was such shocking that he jerked and looked over, still with the barrel in his mouth, and, and he says, she's got her hands over her face, screaming, no, don't do this. She was saying, you haven't killed anyone. You're just a kid. You don't need to do this. And he says, as she was doing this, something pierced my right eye. And she, she was rocking back and forth. And it was this gold cross dangling from her neck, rocking back and forth, catching the light and reflecting the ceiling light. And the light was piercing my eye, he said. And everything changed. The emotion overwhelmed me all of a sudden. Hadn't been feeling anything. And, and pain, not for only the people in the room, but for their families, he says, overwhelmed him. He says, so he walked out. The SWAT team came, team came in and did what they had to do. No one died that day. Satan's voice, it can be very, very real. Maybe it hasn't been that vividly real for you. But there is that voice, that argument that goes on in your head that is often not just your own accusing thoughts and temptation but it's Satan trying to mislead you. And Jesus says truth, trusting God and his truth in Scripture is the first step to overcome that kind of temptation, any kind of temptation. And as you trust him, his spirit can come in and interrupt and, and rescue you from even the most intense temptation. You see, the power to overcome Satan isn't just on our backs. It isn't just our ability to trust and stay in truth. Because the truth is, Jesus didn't come primarily as an example to us, although he is a great example to us. He came as our substitute fighting for us. No matter how much you try or I try, we are always going to fall prey to being hangry and doing something as a shortcut to escape our feelings. We'll never memorize enough Scripture. And even if we do, we'll never be so self-controlled to be able to recall it and believe it in those intense moments of, of temptation when we need it most. You can't just look at Jesus as your example. You have to look at Jesus as your substitute, as the one fighting and winning the battle for you and with you. The one who, when we surrender to his authority and follow him, he sends his Holy Spirit to us just like the Holy Spirit was with Jesus. And therefore, 1 John 4, describing the battle, becomes very true where it says, little children. Yeah, we are little. We're weak, aren't we? You are from God. We can answer the three questions positively. We can say, yes, I am forgiven. Yes, God is a good father to me. Yes, I am really who God says I am and worth what God says I am. After all, God himself came as Jesus to pay my debt for me and made me his own child. So yes, I am from God. And therefore, 
I have, past tense, overcome them. I have overcome the trials and temptations of this world. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Worship team, go ahead and come on back up. You want to overcome temptation and difficulty in your life? Trust God and trust this scripture. Even if you don't like certain parts of scripture, trust that he is big enough as God, as the creator, to accurately and reliably communicate and just acknowledge the fact that he is creator of all. And so therefore, you might not understand everything in scripture yet, so we can let some of those things that put us off just kind of rest on the side and keep asking him about them. But he is nonetheless just, and he is nonetheless good. So trust him when he says, your needs are important. Because he says that. It's not by bread alone. Your needs are important. And it's not through shortcuts that you meet those desires and needs. It's through, as Matthew 6 says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Trust the king and his right ways, his truth, even when you don't feel like it. And he says the promise, and all these things, all these core needs, the bread, the core desires you have, they will be added to you and fulfilled in your life in much more deep and enduring ways than you can ever do it on your own through a shortcut. See, when Jesus finished his temptations, angels came. They ministered to him. God sent bread and food and strengthened Jesus. Why? Because God always has a plan. Trust him. Trust his truth. So how can we respond today? I think simple. If Satan is a liar and a thief, a schemer, intent on manipulating and destroying us, then where is Satan trying to take you out? in the recent days. What truth about God do you need to believe more deeply right now? Would you stand with me as we pray? Lord, thank you that it's not on our backs to do this. Thank you it's not on our backs to memorize and remember and, and that your spirit comes to us. So Father, I pray that we would know your presence. And that where we lack confidence in knowing your presence, where we lack confidence in, in knowing your voice, that you would come to each and every single one of us and give us the confidence to know your voice, to know your presence, and allow your power to become more real in our lives. Lord, that we would be the people who don't live in shortcuts, trading the enduring and the, and the lasting and the full beauty for things that are fake knockoffs and short-lived. But you, Lord, would lead us into the abundant life, even in the midst of the struggle, even through the struggles that we have to face. You would lead us to the abundant life you have for us. So we just say, help us. We thank you that you want to. We thank you that you're here. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you continue to worship? Thank you for listening to this week's sermon audio. If you're loving Quest Podcast, let us know on Facebook or Twitter by using the hashtag GoToQuest. For more information on Quest, who we are, and what God is doing here, or if you would like to help support Quest financially, please visit us at GoToQuest.org. That's G-O-T-O-Quest.org. Thanks for listening.